Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare podcast. Today, I sit down with Jody Scott, one of our leads in the Digital Health Working Group and partner in the Denver office, to talk about her work, her career, her view on the industry, and as always, I'm trying to learn a few things which are not mentioned on our partner's CV. Let's keep the intro short since we're going to hear each other after this for some housekeeping. Without further ado, let's sit down and talk the cure. Hi Jody, before we kick it off and dive into our conversation, I would like to kind of give the stage to you and give me a quick introduction, what you do, where you sit, and let the people know a bit more about you and your practice. Sure. So I'm Jody Scott. I'm a food and drug lawyer in the medical device practice. And unlike the rest of my team, I'm actually located in the Denver office. I have been with the firm 13 years over the course of two tours of duty. I started with a firm as a baby lawyer um, in Washington, D.C., right out of law school. Uh, left to go in-house with Medtronic, um, where I was their in-house principal FDA counsel, and then came back to the firm in Denver. That's interesting to see because that gives us an additional perspective of like you as an in-house lawyer and now back again at awesome Hogan Lobels. <laughs> yeah, they were they were good enough to have me back. In in general, can you dive a little bit deeper what you do and how your day looks like? Sure. So as I said, I am a medical device attorney. I work with companies as they bring their medical device products to market in the U.S., but probably more of my practice is around what happens once they get approval. So we have a fabulous team that Uh, really digs in on the pre-market approval work. And I do things like help them launch their products, uh, help them make sure that their quality management systems are compliant, responding to inspection results when they have FDA inspections that don't go nearly as well as they would like them to do, uh, deal with their advertising and promotion, um, making sure that they're not putting content out into the world that is ultimately going to be a problem for them should FDA see it. I do a good amount of recalls because there's a certain amount of art that goes into recalling medical devices. It's not as simple as one might think where you just simply ask for the product back when you're talking about surgical implants. Oftentimes, if it's been implanted, people aren't necessarily ready to just give that back. So, you know, we have to come up with sort of different methods to manage risk for those types of products. I also do lots of distribution agreements. I co-lead our digital health working group. So I spend a lot of time working with companies that are developing software applications that sort of touch on the regulated space. And that has been sort of a really interesting area because the way that the legislation is written here in the U.S., it's a little bit like a law school exam in that there are broad swaths of products that would ordinarily be considered medical devices that simply are not. They've been carved out. Mm -hmm. And then there's an additional swath where FDA has said, we're not interested in regulating those. So trying to help companies navigate that with software products that are in and of themselves inherently pretty fluid. So I spend a lot of time doing software work. Yeah, we're going to touch a bit on that uh, later on, talking about kind of your role with the digital health working group and um, so what we do in general overall and specifically um, the work you do. Um, since you said you are focusing on food as well as life sciences, what percentage do you would say you're focused on life sciences? 
So I, I spend pretty much 100% of my time working on um, medical devices and life sciences companies. I do a little bit of work with pharmaceutical companies, you know, to the extent that they have combination products that have sort of a device component to them. I would say the, the rel- reliable part that is not in the life sciences area is probably pro bono work. What turns you to life sciences? You move to a client at some point, so it seems you really like the work <laughs> you're doing. So... Um... So I have actually a pharmacy degree as my background, so my technical background. Uh, When I came to the firm, I thought that I would be doing FDA drug work. I had interned with the United States Pharmacopoeia while I was in pharmacy school, and Mm -hmm. so um, which used to be situated right across the street from FDA. And so I just thought that I would naturally be doing drug work since that was my background. But as life has it, you know, oftentimes your path isn't necessarily quite what you imagine it to be. At the time I came into the firm, there was another associate who came in at the same time who had been in industry, the pharmaceutical industry, for 20 years before going to law school. And clearly he had way more experience than I did. (laughs) And so the need was um, for somebody to do the medical device work, and he did the the drug work. And John Kahn, you know, he said, this is, we'd like you to give it a try. If you hate it, we'll figure it out. And, you know, at that point, I owed the government so much money in student loans that I was like, sure, whatever, I'll do whatever you want me to do, so long as it's not illegal. (laughs) And so I gave it a try, and I really liked it. I'll say one of the things I really like about it is that it is the range of technology that we work with is so broad. And so there's a lot of having to learn the technology and it's cutting edge technology, which I really like. I also think because it covers such broad technology, it gives you more opportunity to advocate because Mm -hmm. it's not so settled as to how you sort of move through the different phases. And that I love. I love the ability to sort of figure out, you know, how do we bridge the science and the technology with the law to advocate So that's kind of how I ended up in this industry. You know, I think way back, I was good at math and science. So, um, you know, when you go, when you're young and you're going to college, that just seemed like a natural place to go. But I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. Even when you decided to put in some science aside from law. Yeah, I had originally um, got accepted to a program that was a combined pharmacy law program. So you did your pharmacy degree and then you tracked directly into law school. So that was sort of kind of always the plan. Um, This is why I love these interviews, because you learn so much more about the background. And everyone I talked to had kind of an additional degree, another kind of industry-related background. I was like, oh, this is Mm -hmm. pretty pretty interesting. Um, Hopping over to more like when it comes down to client relationships and the philosophy behind your work and how you interact with clients. Did this and your in-house faith, I would say, <laughs> um, influenced um, the, how you approach client communication or kind of the whole philosophy behind your work? Yeah, you know, I, I have to say, you know, the different phases of my career were all incredibly valuable. I think, you know, when I started with Hogan, I was taught how to be an FDA lawyer. You know, how do you understand how the statute fits together that doesn't necessarily always look like it should fit together? you know, the logic, how do these things really happen? So, you know, and I learned how to be a lawyer at Hogan. And then when I went in-house, I was the only FDA lawyer for a while. And, you know, Medtronic is and was the largest solely medical device company in the world. But that was where I sort of learned how to be a lawyer and a lawyer that is sort of on my own. 
which I think is, it, it was one of the best things I could do because I, I, I think when I was at Hogan, I was very protected. I had partners above me and people who would make sure that everything I did was, you know, right and perfect. But, you know, being a lawyer in a business is not perfect. You know, a lot of it is getting it right enough and managing risk, which is sort of sloppy. So that was where I learned that. So my philosophy is sort of informed by my time in-house. You know, I think I have learned to communicate and manage risk and be comfortable with risk, but also make sure that my clients understand where is the risk? How does it impact you? What are the likely outcomes for it? You know, where would I feel comfortable? And what are the things that sort of make my stomach hurt? Which I would say was hard for me when I first got there. In terms of communicating with clients, you know, I am probably, I'm candid, probably painfully candid because I think sometimes, I think they need to hear things that they don't necessarily always want to hear because, and in hearing them, it gives them the best opportunity to manage their risk and make decisions about, can we, can we expect our people to execute this precisely and we can take on more risk or do we think it's going to be sloppy in the execution and therefore we need to hold it tighter? So yeah, sometimes I, I perhaps maybe I'm a little too candid, but I, I think they need to hear it so they can make good decisions. And on the other hand, you, you have more likely the liability or is it liability change from in-house to external? I think liability changes, I, you know, because I think when you're external, you don't necessarily have as much knowledge about sort of all the details as you do when you're in-house. And oftentimes as outside counsel, we give the advice, we give the analysis, and then we see what happens. Whereas when you're in-house, you live with it in a really real way, you know? So, you know, we would always say these things are business decisions. You know, the, the lawyers don't make decisions. These are business decisions. We advise and we give guidance. But, you know, if, if they make the wrong decisions, and sometimes there are wrong decisions, you know, they'll, they would hear from us again. So, you know, sometimes they're just, you know, not great business decisions. And, you know, that's, that's okay. When you look back at your career for now, there is some time left. <laughs> so um, in your eyes, can we um, set a little bit light on kind of your biggest case or a case which influenced your career? We said, okay, this was part of kind of me moving forward. So when I was in-house, I want to say it was probably maybe a year, well, a couple years in, we had a consent decree of permanent injunction for Medtronic. So it's physio control business. And it had already been under a consent decree. So it was the the second, second go round of the consent decree out in Seattle. And so that was my project to basically go into the business, figure out what the state of affairs is, and then negotiate with the government to get to the best consent decree we could get to. We knew there was going to be a consent decree. We weren't sure what it was going to look like because we'd already had one. But we needed to sort of negotiate certain things so that the business could continue to function because the business was providing um, automated external defibrillators. So it was life-saving technology. And, and it was actually really good technology by and large, but there were certainly areas where the business needed to make some significant improvements. And so that was, that was a significant amount of my time, but it was mine. And not only was I negotiating it as the lawyer for the business, I was also the lawyer that had to deal with the day-to-day. You know, I had to deal with sort of the personnel issues around negotiating the consent decree. I had to sort of think down the road around about what 
what's the outcome? Like, what do all the various results look like? And how are we going to be able to live with them? And if we're going to live with them, how do we make sure that we've done the business planning around having to live with them? And so I think that whole process and, and knowing that the government was scrutinizing everything, that whole process was probably the one that really sort of forced me to come into my own and, um, be really comfortable with the work that I do. Interesting to hear the kind of the other side of the story and it's just like firm related related content. That's um, that's super interesting. From a from kind of and coming back to Hogan Lovells and the work you do here, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and it was super interesting in your background and the story uh, is that you are co-heading the digital health um, working group. Um, in the life sciences and healthcare industry group. Um, can you quickly or briefly give us an overview of what the working group is doing and what we as a firm are aiming at um, since we launched this initiative? Yeah, so the Digital Health Working Group, you know, I think one of the great things about Hogan Lovells is that we have such an incredible depth of expertise within the firm, especially in the life sciences area. And so, you know, we don't have a firm full of generalists. We have lots of specialists and the Digital Health Working Group really brings together all those different areas of people who do work in the digital health space and tries to, you know, keep them connected, talk about priorities, talk about new developments because it's a really fast moving area, you know, bring together teams who can advise on soup to nuts related to digital health area issues. So, you know, it's pretty typical for us on digital health projects to have to deal with kind of U.S. regulatory issues, EU regulatory issues, just because by the nature of software, it's, it's a matter of pushing it out as opposed to, you know, having big distribution and supply chains. So we'll be dealing with them in the EU, throughout Asia, so around the world, sort of what are the regulatory requirements, um, a significant amount of privacy issues, cybersecurity issues, just general you know, data issues. And so it brings together all of those disciplines in addition to sort of the folks who do the work on the back end once the product is out in the market. You know, once they've configured it, they know what it is. There's a whole host of issues around having the product in the market. So all of the licensing agreements, liability, you know, unfortunate situations where things don't always go the way you want them to. And so it brings together all of those specialties to make sure that we're in a position to bring the best offering to clients who are in this space and also bring together the sort of the cutting edge knowledge about how are these things done? Because um, I think oftentimes that's what these companies come to us for. You know, they can do the science and the engineering, but they want to know what is sort of the standard? What is everybody else doing? How do I manage this particular situation? You know, because from a compliance and risk standpoint, you sort of want to be in the pack if there's no clear definition where the boundaries are. So, you know, we can offer that to our clients and the digital health groups help, helps us do that. When you, when you take a look at the group's work and since it's so diverse and so many practices are involved regions are involved are there any particular challenges which comes with this kind of position you are in right now i think the challenge is that it's changing so quickly and to to have a sense of what other people are doing so that when advising clients you're in a position to say oh i see that issue i don't know how to address the issue but i have somebody who does and to be able to make sure that the client gets a benefit of that knowledge. So it's really, you know, being aware and trying to connect those dots for the client. That is that is challenging because it, it relies on sort of me having my brain turned on and, you know, the neurons click, you know, firing together. But, you know, I do find there are times where I'll be like, I see the issue. I 
don't know who knows about it, but I know there's somebody. So now I've got to go find them. And and there pretty much is always somebody. Since networking and communication is the most essential part in, in this working groups, do you find that um, the pandemic and all its challenges coming along with it changed some things? And I'm going to do two-part question okay. here. <laughs> Have you done any kind of particular things to move forward with it and use the challenges and opportunities which comes along with this um, situation? Yes and no. So so my group is largely on the East Coast. I think myself and my associate, Will Henderson, are the only two that are sort of off the East Coast out here in Denver. And so I have always used Skype religiously. I use it as a way to stalk people, kind of like walking by someone's office <laughs> to see if they're in and available. I have used video conferences over the years just because I like to see people's faces. And mm -hmm. I think it's so much easier to have a conversation when you can see how they're reacting as opposed to when it's just a voice. You know, it's hard to kind of, it just feels different when it's yeah. just a voice call. So I have always used that. I am a big fan of doing video calls. I think the the ability to see my clients, you know, I have so many clients that before the pandemic, I had never seen them. I didn't know what they look like. Not that that was super important, but I think in terms of developing relationships, it's nice to sort of have a face to go with the voice, to go sure, with the personality. Yeah. And, and it's difficult to make connections anyway. I think that helps. So I'm a big fan of using video calls, video conferences. You know, I think it's funny because I dress now, you know, kind of from the waist up. Because that's what I do. <laughs> I think most people do. But that has sort of been, I, I think, has been sort of a good outcome because now I have a lot of clients who I've seen their faces, mm -hmm. which I think it kind of deepens the relationship when you know who kind of who you're dealing with. And I reach out. You know, I've always felt like relationships are really important from a lawyer standpoint. You know, yeah. I, when I was in house, I would say, listen, people aren't going to come tell you their problems if they don't know you and they don't feel like they can trust you. You know, yeah. you need them when you're an in-house lawyer managing risks for the company to come to you and say, so this thing happened because otherwise you have no idea it's out there. Yeah. So I've always been kind of a big proponent and advocate for developing relationships yeah i wanted to to reference because from an initiative standpoint what we've done is for example um the virtual health initiative we started um and got on the road in a couple of weeks do the whole corona um or COVID 19 developments and in the specific in the sector of telehealth which were developing rapidly i would say yes in a conservative wording <laughs> So that would be, for example, a good, a good example where everyone in the working group kind of put their brains together and come up with quite a good product. Yeah. And I have to say with COVID, I do love the amount of innovation that is, you know, that's being brought forward. I mean, in the medical device industry, we were so focused on making sure that we could help companies bring all of the testing all of the PPE and ventilators. And we saw a lot of our clients really step up and say, you know, this isn't really core to what I normally do, but I feel like I can help. Yeah. And so we're going to repurpose our production line. We're going to get the approvals. We're going to spend the money on the testing. And not because they were necessarily looking to make money, but because they felt like they could help, which mm. is heartening. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and it was super interesting to see who stepped forward, who you wouldn't potentially imagine doing so just based on the fact that it was a different play field. 
Absolutely. So there were a lot of companies that were not traditionally medical device companies who stepped in and said, I think I have something I can do here, which was cool. Or, or even companies I would never consider within the life sciences space. I agree. And looking forward, hopefully, it, I know it's difficult to do so because nobody really knows how this is going to end. Since it's um, hard to kind of see what's what's coming next, and then I would say the next 12 months, but did you set any goals for yourself professionally, personally, related to the Digital Health Working Group? Anything you would like to share in that area? Do I set, have I set goals for myself? Well, I maybe would have had some goals at the beginning of the year before COVID. But I think when, you know, when this, has, when this settled in, I think all bets are off um, in the sense of I, I think it's sort of a just try to get through it and drag all of your people with you. You know, I wish there was sort of more strategy around it. I don't think there can be because it's such an evolving situation. I do have optimism, though. I think that the healthcare industry has really sort of ramped up and put its best brains on trying to get us to a place where things can go back to something that looks like normal. I think new normal will be different going mm -hmm. forward. Yeah. Um, but I think the, the folks that do the development work, they know how to do that work. They know how to develop these products and, and bring them to market. And I think they'll be successful. So I do mm -hmm. think we will get back to normal. But do you think client interaction will be different so the since your work was pretty travel heavy mm -hmm. in the past do you think that will change i think so i think um kind of along the lines of innovation that this being forced to stay home has sort of proven to a lot of clients that we can get so much done without anybody getting on a plane and to the extent that you want that face-to-face -face interaction we can do it By video conference and yeah. it's so much more efficient so i do think that the the need to travel as much will decrease you know there are some things that you simply have to do in person you know you can't sure. audit a, a production facility yeah well you can audit a production facility remotely somebody kind of run around with the iphone in their hand and just yeah. <laughs> show just, you around <laughs> yeah but it's not as, as good as walking a production line yeah for sure uh, So, I mean, that will still continue, but I do think the use of video conferences will decrease the need for people to actually get on planes and go places, which I think is good. Um, it's expensive. It takes so much time. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So. Cool. And since we just looked into the glass bowl, I, I would like to take you back. And one of my favorite questions, which I'm trying to ask anyone is like, If you had the chance to change anything, or if you would have known the things you know right now when you started out, would you change something? When I started out, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't. You know, I think all of those steps and struggles really put me where I am today. I'm trying to think if there's something that I would go back and either get rid of or do differently. <laughs> um I mean, I th I'm pretty pleased, you know, with where I've managed to end up today, you know, bumps, warts and all. Would I maybe, maybe would I have moved to Colorado sooner? Maybe we really like living in Colorado. Maybe mm -hmm. I, I would have finagled my way to move to Colorado while I was with Medtronic. I think I needed to spend the time there. I think it was really good for me, but we've really loved living in Colorado. So I can imagine why. But could you just do like uh, why? Why? 
So I grew up in Minnesota, which is partly why I went back to Medtronic. Um, mm-hmm. So interestingly, they built their headquarters on the drive-in movie theater grounds that I used to go to as a kid. Um, <laughs> so it was very weird to go back for the first day of work to drive onto that that same plot of land. But growing up in Minnesota, I raced downhill slalom. And so mm-hmm. we're big skiers. My husband's a big skier. And after being in Minnesota for you know eight years again, as an adult, we decided, well, we had taught our kids to ski and they were quickly getting past what we had in Minnesota. Um, And I had forgotten how long and cold the winters are. And so we had always talked about moving back to Colorado where the winters are, they still have winter, but it's much shorter. And the skiing is just so much better. So that was, you know, it's that the outdoors, it's, um, we love sort of the people in Colorado because they're mm-hmm. sort of a welcoming open vibe. You know, nobody's really, very few people are from Colorado. Um, okay. so a lot of people have lived in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. So they tend to be very welcoming and they also have sort of that perspective of being the person who moves in. And so, and there's a very live and let live type of vibe to Colorado, which I love most of the time, not always, but most of the time, (laughs) you know, and my kids have settled really well here. So, you know, it's all of those things that we have no bugs. There are no bugs in Colorado, like mosquitoes, whereas Minnesota has millions of them. So, you know, just, it's, it's, it's a great place to be. Sounds, sounds really good. Thank you for the insights. And, um, (laughs) I'm trying to sell stuff to Colorado, to the tourism. Right? <laughs> Come over. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. Have you been here? No. No? But it's uh, on my to-do, it's on my travel list. Well, if you manage to come here, come to Colorado, it's fantastic. I mean, the mountains, the outdoors, it's beautiful. Probably right now, not right now, we have forest fires. But, um, you know, if you like to do things, there's plenty to do. Um, corona corona got me back into fishing because uh, that's the only thing you could do without having people around you right <laughs> so <laughs> true um yeah we've been kayaking uh, and paddleboarding a lot yeah so we haven't quite figured out should we buy our own have we crossed over on the rental fees that we should have bought our own i don't know <laughs> stand-up pedaling is really um really hip right now in yeah. my area Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have a lot of water here, but the little bit we do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Jody, thank you. Thank you really much for taking the time. Before we close our conversation, I have kind of a question. I, I'm trying to ask everyone. Not everybody is comfortable with this question, but I, I would like to try it to ask it. So if you could have dinner with three people, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Okay. So Martin Luther King, because I would love to hear the stories from him mm-hmm. and, and just understand what it was that really, I mean, I know what drove him, but like really f- from his perspective, in his words, what drove him to take on such a huge challenge Yeah. Um, in the way that he did? And, 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 you know, what made him think that he was going to be successful. So I just think he's fascinating and he's so articulate. Um, Prince, cause I'm from Minnesota Mm -hmm. and he has a great story and fantastic music. I've been listening to it a lot lately because he's just cool. (laughs) (laughs) And then Michelle Obama, 
because I think she's just an amazing woman. I think if, um, you know, if she was willing, she would make an amazing presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. Um, But she also has an amazing story of somebody who really came from modest means and worked really, really, really hard to get where she she was and and wasn't just and isn't just the first lady. I mean, Mm -hmm. a ton incredible accomplishments in her own right, in addition to being a first lady. Have you listened to her podcast? I haven't. I started reading her book and then I got distracted with other things. So, but we <laughs> yeah. did go see her when she came to Denver. I took my uh, then I think 13 year old daughter to go see her and just, just, you know, just a wonderful woman and a woman who owns who she is. So that's true. Yeah. I think it'd be a fascinating, super, super interesting trio and having them sitting on one table. I know. Wouldn't that um, be fun? Could be really fun. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> could be super interesting. Um, Okay. So um, from my side, uh, that was super interesting. I'm really happy that I convinced you jumping with me on uh, the podcast and asking all these questions. Um, Is there anything else you would like to address or um, you have on your mind you would like to share with our audience? I think I have great hopes for where we're going to come out of this COVID. I think wonderful technology is coming. Lots of really, really smart people are working on it. So, you know, I hope people are able to just sort of persevere until we get through this. So, but this has been a lot of fun. So thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. That were perfect words to end our conversation. Thank you, Jody, for having me. That's it for today. If you have further questions for Jody, I'll link to bio in the description below. If you don't want to miss any new episode and haven't subscribed yet, hit the subscribe button on your favorite platform. We're going to hear each other in about two weeks, so thank you for tuning in, and we are looking forward to have you back when we're talking The Cure.